seen the uh, calligraphy right outside without situation, true life. Everyone notices it. <laughs> Someone wanted to know, well, what does it mean? Show of hands, how many people have gotten caught up in this uh, piece of calligraphy? The rest of you just walk right past it and notice it. Very mindful, that's good. Yeah. You wrote the note? Oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, without situation, true life. Uh, we've been saying, Corrado was talking about that last night. Uh, just in Vipassana, we just use ordinary language, you know, kind of simple-minded and boring. One plus one equals two. Um, when we let go of the attachment, our situation are the things that keep us from being real because we get attached to, let's say, the features or the elements of the particular situation, which keeps changing. So once, it doesn't mean the situation literally that, that there's no situation, but in a, in a certain way we're without a situation because we're not uh, attached to it. Uh, sometimes situation in uh, this tradition is used along with situation, condition, and opinion. Uh, they say just let all three vanish and then you have uh, true life. Situation would be, in a sense, the context and opinions are what we're doing all day long, all our views and opinions. And condition is more uh, physical, psychological. But sometimes the word situation just stands for the whole thing. Just stop getting caught in your situation, then you can enjoy it. You can be fully in the present. like to uh, talk about our practice that we've been doing for a while now and um, add another dimension to it. We've already been doing it off and on, but just to make it explicit. Some years ago, uh, I was studying with a Burmese teacher named Tangpulu, Tangpulu, Saidor. And there was a period of time where uh, whenever I would fold my legs and sit, <clears throat> I would just get into, uh, get very concentrated, have lots of joy, lots of happiness. If things came up, I would look into them, see their impermanent nature, let them go, get even happier. Then I'd unfold my legs and I'd get up and I would just be totally depressed. <laughs> it's true. This went on for a while. Then I, I learned I could just quickly sit down fast and fold my legs again and go to my breath and then there I'd be happy again. Then I'd cautiously unfold my legs, stand up, sadness, depression. So I, after a while I went to him and I told him about it. I was concerned and he just practically jumped out of his chair. He was so happy for me which was strange to me. He said, 
oh, sure, now you're ready to really start dealing with that sadness and depression. It's been there all along, but now you're ready. Uh, Or in a position of being able to. Uh, Sometimes I think it's kind of hilarious that as we do this, the first part of the retreat, and we emphasize it, we spend a lot of time on the breath uh, as a singular object of attention. So that some degree of calm and happiness and peace can enter consciousness. And it's as if what we're doing is we're, get, we're helping one another through practicing this way day in and day out to get to the point where we're happy enough to look at our suffering. And I always thought something hilarious about that. Does that make any sense to any of you? It doesn't? It doesn't. Um, What we're doing, I'll try to help it make sense. Um, When we're, let's say we've been working with the breath in the the exclusive way, what we're doing is we're, one of the things that happens is the energies of the mind, which are dispersed, they're all over the place, are collected and unified around the breath. That is, the breath is the focal point. It brings things together. And we start to feel some uh, good vibrations, right? Sometimes. We feel good. We feel more calm, more concentrated. Um, and the... The, this teaching is based on the Anapanasati Sutra, which are 16 independent, interdependent contemplations of the breath, divided into four sets of four. I'm not going to go through all 16, but I want to give you uh, very briefly a sense of it. The first four have to do with helping the mind and body become more calm and peaceful, happier, bring some happiness in. And we've been doing a lot of that. Uh, there's the potential in that is, is infinite. You can go deeper and deeper into what are called the jhanas, but a certain degree of uh, calming down, settling down, uh, abiding in that calmness and, set, and, and settled condition uh, is very, very helpful. Some would say an essential precondition for learning about ourselves in any deep way. So that's the first four. The second four, uh, just to make sure the first four are clear, uh, having to do with uh, seeing the body, the breath, that it's it's coming in, it's coming out. We've been talking about it, that noticing the qualities of the breathing, that sometimes it's deep, sometimes it's shallow, sometimes it's very, very fine, sometimes it's coarse, sometimes it's very... um, pleasant to breathe, other times painful. And as the breath goes, so goes the body. Have you begun to see some of that? The breath powerfully conditions the body. Of course it does. That is, the breath is when enters into this body, in a sense, breathes life into it. You know, life is breathed into clay and we have a human being into earth. So how could the breath not be a powerful conditioner affect the body tremendously since the most important effect it gave it was the initial one of giving it life in the first place. And so 
the, the breath starts to become a little bit more fine. The body becomes more subtle, more calm. Uh, it makes sitting sometimes a lot easier. Uh, an overall sense of peace in mind and body. And that's the first four. The second four have to do with feelings. And of course, there's no way to escape feelings. You've already dealt with them even in the first four. Feelings are this fact that uh, our experience from the mo- for all day long have to do with things are experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, without end. That sound, if you listen to it and you, li- and you uh, bring mindfulness to it, there's an almost immediate reaction. It happens very, very quickly that some people will be very happy to hear the rain, the sound of the rain. Some won't enjoy it, and for many it'll just be neutral, just be that sound. And it's the same with everything, tastes and so forth. From moment to moment, we're just full of feeling. To be a human being is to have lots of feeling. This is not quite emotion in the Western psychological sense. It's more, it's simpler. Emotions are built up out of these elements of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, which are instantaneous reactions to the contact we have with our world through the sense doors. And getting to know your feelings in the first four contemplations are getting to know the body, using the breath to get to know the ways of the body. The second four are getting to know feelings. Very, very important. Uh, the entire planet is being driven by feelings. We're all here. We all come, come scurrying here with our baskets to collect good feelings to take home and to leave the bad ones here with the Zen Center. Isn't that so? As no, I've come here to not to get feelings, but uh, to attain absolute truth. Yeah, it would make you feel good. That idea, is a, that's, that, that idea is, has a nice feeling tone to it, doesn't it? Truth, truth. Yeah. So you came here for that, to feel good. It's nothing to be ashamed of. The Buddha said, uh, no one cares about happiness more than I do. That's why I went through all of this. So we're here because we, we care about our own happiness. If not, I would just go back into psychotherapy. I mean, if you don't, well, that is why you're here. So the feelings, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings, uh, start to grow out of the concentrated mind. For example, some of you, many of you, perhaps all of you, have felt some very pleasant feelings, some um, joyful feelings, some peaceful feelings. So you've gotten to know that, and you've also experienced some very painful feelings, sometimes excruciating, agonizing, tormenting. So we've, in moving on to second four uh, contemplations, in one way or another, have to do with getting to know the realm of feelings, continuing to use the breathing. Breathing in and breathing out, breathing in. Breathing in, I know I'm experiencing a pleasant feeling, a neutral feeling or uh, an unpleasant feeling, breathing out the same way. Remember, the key is that throughout, the breath is like a, a thread with beads. In the sense, the beads are all the experience that comes up from moment to moment. And we're weaving our way through. That's, it's, our, uh, it's like a sail as we sail through our experience. So in this particular method, we keep being with the breath. 
sometimes exclusively, but more and more, not exclusively. Okay. So the second set of four has to do with coming to know our feelings as they are. Getting familiar with the world of feeling, getting to know what it feels like uh, for things to be painful. Now, we've been having these feelings all along, but we have many ways of squelching them, running away from them, repressing them, explaining them away, but not allowing ourselves uh, to really feel them, to be in touch with them, to, in an intimate way, experience just what joy feels like, what peace feels like, what the absence of peace feels like, agitation. So we're getting first-hand, in-depth training on the realm of feelings. And then the third set of four have to do with the mind itself. Feelings is also part of the mind, but it's everything else in the mind. And one of the most important uh, for all of us is the ninth, which uh, has to do with knowing the content of the mind. That is what... In a sense, the mind is empty space, vast and empty space. And this is not merely a poetic metaphor. That is, some of you report it. As the mind calms down, you say, things feel more spacious. It feels like I have more space, more room to live in. Before that, it's very crowded because all the thoughts are fighting with each other, chasing each other through the mind, bumping into each other, tripping over each other. And we don't know that there are any other possibilities. And as the thoughts start thinning out, quieting down, bigger spaces between thoughts, uh, you start to feel part of some... There's space. The space has been there all along, but it's been all cluttered up. Just as if, if we took down these walls and the ceiling, we'd see that the sky is over us. But as long as we box ourselves in this way, with thoughts, so to speak, these are the thoughts we're experiencing this space as reality. This is all that we know. This uh, is analogous to the mind. Whereas more and more as the mind becomes more still, we find out that it's a vast place. Very interesting, vast place. Uh, The ninth is important because it gives us an opportunity to... uh, to become more familiar with our own minds. A lot of it is what is often called self-knowledge, self-understanding. In a very uh, a way I think that all of us understand it's that we know about in psychotherapy, philosophers talk about it, and just anyone, any person, uh, the different ways in which the mind is, the different moods that keep coming through the mind. It's one main thing is moods keep coming through the mind Uh, in the Buddhist way of looking at things greed hatred and delusion are the three main kinds of uh, mind states that either color that infinite space seem to fill it up or are not there so that in a given moment when the mind is colored in some way by wanting I want this I want that And there are a lot of children of that main, let's say, greed or wanting, the wanting mind. Anytime something is insufficient and there's a stirring to get more, to get it better, that tendency, we see that's in the mind. Or aversion, anytime we're trying to rid ourselves of anything, remove ourselves from something, push something away, demolish something or someone, 
That's another main way in which the mind occupies itself. And delusion is whenever the mind is running in circles, uh, contradictory, indecisive, lacking in faith in what to do next. You know, should I walk? I'm going to take my walk, but should I was watching one person, not saying who. And it seemed to be a major decision, let's say, to go out. Maybe it was me. <laughs> to go out the main gate, or you know there's like a side way to walk out. The main one which says Providence, you know, quant, quant, Quantum Zen Center. And then there's a smaller one. And so, uh, this one, that one. Finally, I was really glad it got resolved. And it, the, the work of that contemplation is... As you breathe in and as you breathe out, you're in touch with what's the, the way the mind is colored in that moment. Is it being colored with some kind of wanting, some kind of not wanting, some kind of confusion? Or the absence, that is, is what does it feel like when the mind has no greed in it, when it's not wanting anything? What's it like when the mind is not trying to get away from anything, has no aversion, no aggression whatsoever? What's it like when the mind is very clear and sure of itself? And there are many, you know, it's the, the world of all the different psychological states, including the sub, uh, sub or unconscious. So as you practice, and um, I hope you're seeing this, the instructions that were given this morning as allowing for all these things to get known, uh, because as you breathe in and as you breathe out, really all 16 stages or st- different contemplations can be experienced. So that let's say in a given moment when you're breathing in and breathing out, if there's some mood in the mind of wanting something, you're, whether you know it or not, you're carrying out contemplation nine, uh, which has to do with... <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? Does this feel better or more important? <laughs> Yeah, more classical. And so if that turns up and you've given it some time, breathing in, you know that the mind wants something. Breathing out, you know the mind wants something. Then uh, that whole area of coming to know the mind is improving as we're becoming more familiar with ourselves. Now, if you recall, the breath uh, in, in these cases is, in, is uh, working in, uni- in uh, harmony, in cooperation with mindfulness. That is, you could just be mindful of the mind state. You could just be mindful of the feeling. You could just be mindful of the body. But what, in Anapanasati, what we're doing is that the breath, conscious breathing, joins mindfulness of the object. They both, they're partners. Uh, I was trying to say something like this, and Corrado came up with a nice way of saying it. It's sort of like mindfulness uses the wings of the breath to kind of fly to the object. Uh, something like that when it's really clicking. It's not that you're, you're not dividing your attention. Let's say half of my attention is on the breath and half is on my knee. No, if the knee is very is, is dominant, if it's really vivid, go right to the knee, fully attend to the knee. But the breath is happening anyway. 
And more and more, as the uh, conscious breathing becomes more conscious, and it does by practice, you'll find that the, the, the conscious breathing uh, is a unified field or in the background, kind of nourishing and helping the, the direct mindfulness of the knee or the mindfulness of whatever. So in a way, there are two projects that we've carried out. One project has to do with calming down, becoming a little bit more at peace, a little bit happier. The second project, growing right out of that, is to become more and more familiar with the mind and the body, our mind and our body. And I hope that we're all, I don't see how we can escape that on a retreat of this sort. Even if they were, if we gave you no help, let's say you just walked in, you just say, okay, we'll see you on Sunday when the retreat's over, just pay attention. No help at all. And you can't talk to anyone, though. You can eat and go to the toilet and sleep, but that's it. How could you not learn something about yourself? I don't know, maybe we make it harder, but by, <laughs> by making it easier. But hopefully, it does, we are, the getting happier uh, so that you can uh, see your unhappiness. What I was, you understand it now? Okay. Yes or no? No. Okay. If you're really troubled, it's pretty, you, you may think you're looking at your trouble, but it's kind of fanciful. In other words, one part of the mind is in such pain, it's trying to see another part of the mind. That's, I feel, in part why. Uh, you know, self-knowledge is extolled. Everyone believes in it. Know thyself. Right? Every philosophy, every university has got something about that. It's wonderful. We all, we're all for it. But how many people do you see doing it? There aren't long lines of people queuing up. There really aren't. There are not too many of us here, you know. Okay. So, it's never been an easy thing to do. Uh, and people who are trying to get to know themselves, you know, are, I'm sure, in certain ways. But it's very, very limited if the mind is not fit to do the job. I mean, if it has no calm, no stability, what is it really seeing? It's like trying to take a picture with a camera that's shaking. It's, it, you can't bring anything into focus. And so you're seeing something, but it, and maybe it's of some help. But what if you could really have some clarity? What if there was a clear seeing? That is, there was something stable, namely mindfulness. And that mindfulness, which is one of its main qualities, is that it is mirror-like, reflects back. We're able to accurately reflect just what is happening right now. That's its job. That's all. It's not to add to it or subtract from it or to have theories about it or, or anything else. It's just to reflect back. Well, wouldn't that be helpful? And that's what we're doing in a sense where we already have mindfulness. Everyone here came with it. It's not that we implanted it in any way. We, in fact, it's a very profound fact that we all can be mindful. It's our most, I would say, our most important link to the Buddha. When we take refuge in the Buddha, you could say the Buddha is mindfulness. The Buddha is really the perfection of many spiritual qualities including compassion, mainly compassion and understanding. Those are the two most prominent. My, now, we might say, well, how can I uh, 
the Buddha is just has perfected everything. Where am I? I'm just this little person, and I just feel so remote from this enormous uh, person that that went so deep. I mean, had to have gone so deep to have left a, a corpus of writings and teachings. But we have all the qualities that the Buddha had, and one very important one is mindfulness, the ability to know how you're living while you're living out your life. That is, as we live out our life, to be able to be sensitive to what's happening to us as it's happening. We haven't perfected that, but we have it in common with the Buddha who has taken that all the way. In fact, as pointed out, the most important thing is to be the knowing. A Buddha is someone who is the knowing. That's the most important quality in the sense that in the heart out of which everything else is possible. The Buddha at one point was referred to as somebody who has perfected come what may seeing. You could also say come what may knowing. Remember, knowing here doesn't mean thinking. It's a deeper kind of understanding. What does it mean to perfect come what may seeing? Well, that's what I've been talking about leading up to it, and we're going to move to the last four uh, so you have some sense of what this teaching is about. Come what may seeing means just what it sounds like, that this person known as the Buddha developed the ability to be able to pay attention to no matter what turned up, come what may. Now, as you know, you've all been in on interviews, there have been some things that are very hard to pay attention to. In fact, we've been unable to. And that's, we suffer. We come in and we talk about ourselves in the old way, attributing all kinds of neurotic qualities to ourselves, being discouraged, and etc. In that moment, the capacity to know has gotten uh, deceived It hasn't remained a clear, independent mirror that is able to reflect what's actually happening. It's gotten taken over by greed and confusion, whatever. It's gotten co-opted. And then we start talking about our story in the interview. And Corrado and I, gently, and maybe sometimes not so gently, as we get towards the end, it becomes less gentle. (laughs) We're trying to uh, in a polite way, Corrado is more polite than I am. <laughs> it's that old world, you know, culture. We're trying to say, listen, enough of your story. Aren't you tired of your story? How many more times are you going to see Gone with the Wind? For me, it was five. I walked out. I couldn't stand. I did not want to hear what Brett had to say and what Charlotte, whatever, Scarlet. But in those moments, it's so real that we're, we're not really able to look at it or we're looking at it in a very compromised way. It's caught up in all kinds of views and opinions and fears and so forth. And what uh, the practice is attempting to do is as we calm down, as we become more familiar with ourselves in the ordinary way, that we feel this way, that we have these kind of mental tendencies, that our body is such and such right now, the challenge becomes 
can we pay attention to whatever is there fully? No matter what it is. And as you know, it's not easy. We get knocked on our, what you call it, many, many times. And the practice is to get up and start all over again. Perhaps it's to just watch the breath again. The breath is so, for most of us, uh, simple and uncomplicated. It's always there. And so we can regain our sense of, of being present using the breathing. And as we do that, then once again, we begin to look not only at the breathing, but we begin to look at whatever is happening. And the come what may is the challenge because we have strong likes and dislikes, things that we're terrified of. We have rage. We've been violated by people. These, this all happened. We've had some terrible experiences in our life. People have died. People have left us. We have left people. We have done terrible things to others. Can we look at that? You can see we're kind of uh, in training. We're trying to help train the mind that we came here with so that it is able more and more to do that. Why? Why, what's, why should we look at this stuff? Why not just live you know, what, in a fool's paradise? If we could get away with it, I'd be the first one there. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem to work. What can help us to approach these mind states and physical conditions? Help us approach it so that we can begin uh, to move in the direction of of having uh, the ability to pay attention, come what may. That is to be with what's there, simply because it is there. Uh, One thing that can help is the way in which we look at it way in which we look at what is happening. And here, teaching is very important, verbal teaching, until we make it our own. Many of you know of Thich Nhat Hanh's image of uh, garbage and roses. For those of you who don't, uh, the natural attitude would be that roses are are wonderful and garbage is something useless. We have to get rid of it. It smells bad and so forth. But that's dualistic. We side with one aspect of reality over and above against another aspect. Uh, and not, we don't see the total picture in the, in the process of uh, being partial to the rose, not the garbage. Uh, we create a problem for ourselves. And what is being suggested is that the rose is on the way to becoming garbage but the garbage is on the way to becoming a rose. That this is uh, what is, by people who understand nature know that, organic gardeners and so forth. So that uh, there's no contempt for garbage because g- garbage has its place. It's needed for more healthy 
vegetation. And in Buddha Dharma, there's one. Uh, I don't. I don't want to go into a great deal, great detail with it now. Uh, one very important point, or d- perhaps different difference between the way in which most of us go about our our attitude in daily life, and that is, in the Dharma, uh, the training in Dharma is to have re- nothing is worthless. It's not just garbage and roses. It's an attitude of infinite respect. Respect for yourself, respect for what that means, everything that constitutes what we think of as being myself, and everything else. It's not unique to Buddhism. I would say it's uh, a spiritual quality that's in all the great traditions. Is this respect for everything? Nothing's useless. Uh, we begin to to notice the the many things we take for granted, the capacities that we have that. You know, that work, the little, just take this retreat, this, this building, um, the people who live here who have been so cooperative, the, the weather, so many things of uh, the cook. And it can become so minute that in some monasteries you'll see people bowing to their cushions, to an inanimate object. Because they know that even the cushion, and I can tell you that, I, I really learned that one on this retreat. I always nodded, yeah, sure, of course the cushion's important. The first few days were really hard on my, for my sitting because of those square cushions, they just don't work for me. So uh, Michelle lent me a black cushion, round one, and it's just wonderful, no problems. So, you know, if anyone should bow to the cushion, it would be me. But there are all kinds of things like this that make up our world. The world of nature, the world of things. For example, if Corrado and I, let's say we were to take a couple of days off, just say, we're going away for a few days, why don't you all please keep practicing, but not say it in a, you know, a serious way. Some of you would get very angry and, and leave and get your money back. Uh, probably many of you would think it's a teaching, you know, that this must be <laughs> some, <laughs> that they must, this must be the Thai forest tradition. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so you, you could learn to live with it. We'll be back in a couple of days. But, you know, sit and walk. The schedule's posted and so forth. But what if there were no toilet paper for two days? Do you think you'd be as tolerant, or as if you, this place would go crazy? The whole retreat would be destroyed. People would be hysterical. Out of here. We're out of here. <laughs> So which is more important? (laughs) The Dharma attitude is that you bow to toilet paper. You you more and more begin to see how precious it is to be alive. And in a sense, you count your blessings. You cherish them. Okay, now, when these states that we don't like come up in the mind... What is the analogy of, let's say, garbage and roses to these states that come up in our mind? What, what is being said is that, let's say there's anguish of some kind. That would be the equivalent of garbage. We don't like anguish or rage, etc. We do like peace, 
We do like joy. We do like love when that comes up. We call that a good sitting. Okay. So when, let's say anguish comes up, and we've had it, of course, before in our life, we have um, quite a long history of conditioning, of hating it, of wanting to get away from it, of suppressing it, of in some way dealing with it, struggling with it. But we, let's say if anguish is played off against peace, let's say peace is the rose in this case, anguish uh, is the garbage. Uh, so we want peace, but we don't want anguish. So we've set up an opposition. This is bad, and it's, sometimes it feels like it's coming from outside, assaulting us. This anguish is, if only the anguish weren't here, I could really practice. Okay, the Dharma attitude is, uh, little by little, I think you'll learn it, you'll see that here, anguish, far out, wonderful. Thank you very much. Because you see, uh, trapped in the anguish is all this wonderful energy that is being held captive, which, if it's released, is now more peace, more joy, more whatever you want. It's a transformation. It's not, that's what the, the non-dualistic approach is something like that. So that what does the transforming is the mindfulness. Mindfulness and understanding as we look deeply into anguish, if we're willing to do it, if we're look, willing to look at our rage, at our terror. There's a great gift in it because let's say you, we have a lot of fear. We would love to be courageous. Well, the courage is tucked inside of the fear like a fortune cookie. It's inside. But what has to happen is we have to work with the fear. And the energy of the fear becomes transformed into courage. Can you, can you see that? In other words, that so that we don't... Uh, every, nothing is, everything is useful. We, we have respect for every psychological state that comes up. It's all part of it. So... How can we re-educate ourselves to approach these states which we have hated and have had aversion to? And we do anything not to feel. And you know what that... I do not want to feel this anguish. I just hate that feeling of fear, of loneliness and so forth. The Dharma attitude, and it's of course not limited just to psychological states, is quite opposite to the attitude of daily life that we've been educated into, where there are clear enemies and friends and good and bad and garbage and roses and up and down and saints and sinners and all of those distinctions that are conceptual which chop up a unified world into fragments. So a reflection like that can be very helpful uh, and maybe the next time the anguish comes up it's still hard for you to do. But little by little you start to approach it, use some, some of the supplementary practices. Maybe you can't really look at the anguish just yet. Little by little, we edge towards it. The breath is a big help. That's part of the power of Anapanasati. That is, you now have company as you approach the anguish. The conscious breathing is, in a sense, holding your hand and helping soothing. It's nourishing the mindfulness, which then can look into the anguish. And what will it see? Well, we now get into the last four. There's no time. So we have to forget about wisdom. There's no time for wisdom tonight. (laughs) But 
a lot needn't be said because I do want to say just this much so that it can become part of your practice. And tomorrow in the uh, instructions after the sitting after breakfast, uh, I'll say a little bit more about it. We've calmed the mind, the first phase, and also more and more we're becoming familiar with the different, kind, the different body, bodily states, the different mind states. And now the last four have to do with pure vipassana, pure insight work. And that has to do, step number one is the 13th contemplation, 13 through 16, have to do with wisdom, understanding, letting go, nirvana, liberation, enlightenment. That's what the last four are about. They are uh, seeing the fundamental principles, the the lawfulness, or it's um, learning the lessons of nature that characterize this realm that we've been getting more familiar with of the body and the mind. And the first one is impermanence. The thirteenth is fully contemplating all phenomena as impermanent, I breathe in. Fully contemplating all phenomena as impermanent, I breathe out. Now, impermanence is the door. It leads to anatta, shunyata, and all those words that some of you hate (laughs) or don't know what they mean. Emptiness, not-self. Impermanence is... Uh, very, very precious, beginning to see that everything that arises passes away. Let me just leave you with this thought, this anguish. Let's say anguish comes up, and maybe reflecting on it, understanding that if you can open to the anguish, if you can allow the anguish to just be what it is, that is the non-dualistic approach, fully uh, seeing that it's really a rose in disguise. And so there's more motivation. You may have to, it may take 10 sittings or 10,000 sittings, but little by little, more and more, you begin to have the courage to put your big toe in the water and little by little, you sit, even though you may be crying or shaking or worrying, but you don't leave, you don't run away, either inside your mind or take your body somewhere else. And the day comes when you're more able to Fully be with the anguish just as it is. You don't try to get rid of it because it's bad, because it's garbage and it smells. You don't. You take good care of it because you know it's invaluable. Now, as your ability to stay with the anguish improves, you can begin to see that anguish is impermanent and that it lacks self. Anguish, this may sound not very intelligent, but it's the most profound thing I know. Anguish is just anguish. Do you know what I mean? Just remember, someone was helped. The breath is just the breath. An in-breath is just an in-breath. That's what it is. A sound is a sound. An aroma, like this morning, the smell of the meal came in. That's just a smell. Did you know that? That's what that is. A thought is a thought. Okay, anguish is anguish. And if, if you can stay with it, you'll see that Anguish is something that arises. In other words, there was a moment in the mind when it wasn't. Then there's a moment where it enters and it uh, peaks, perhaps comes to a crescendo if you're there with it. And it runs its course. And then it fades out, it thins out, and it leaves. And then there's, then it's replaced by incredible relief because anguish is gone. But if you see that, oh, I see. Anguish arises and passes away. That is a very important step in the development of wisdom because what we now see is that anguish isn't quite of the nature that we thought it was. Solid, enduring, 
uh, oppressive to the point where it's hopeless. We see that it's something that it's like a natural event. It's just like observing, like a, a naturalist observes animals or birds, or we observe the tides coming in and coming out. We see that anguish is part of life. It's part of nature. If every human being has anguish, whatever else, and you see that is not separate from nature. You see that it's it's an impersonal process in a way, a natural process. It arises. It does what it must do. It follows its own nature, and then it leaves. It's a law. That's what happens. And it's not self, because if you can observe it, how could it be really you? And it's not permanent, so that it doesn't have quite the status of a self that you thought it did, or as as an entity that you thought it did. Well, if you begin to see that once in anguish, the next time around it may be a little bit easier. Oh, hi, here comes anguish. Come on in. Sit down. Have some tea, for God's sakes. And then anguish hates that, though. You have to know that. (laughs) It wants you to either get sucked in or to fight with it. So that the last four contemplations, again, still using the breathing. Breathing in, I'm aware of anguish. Breathing out, I'm aware of anguish. Breathing in, I see anguish beginning to fade out. Breathing out, anguish is gone. I mean, I shortened the time because of time. Would that it was that simple. Can you have a few moments of silence, please? If any talk, if any point made during the talk was of any help at all, take it up right now. Reflect on it. Let it sink deeper into the heart. <laughs> 